0: today. Uh, has, as has been mentioned a few times, we are starting a new series. And uh, what we want to do is go through the book of Acts. And uh, actually, not the whole book of Acts. We're probably going to be going through more like the first 11 chapters. And I think that this is an important Do I need to use the other mic? This seems problematic. I'm going to use the other one. Check. Great. So, uh Here's why I think we're going to go through Acts. And we've been thinking about this for a while. What are we going to do after the Abide series? And the idea of church and what it really is has been a hot topic these days. Uh, The last two years have been an interesting time where the deck has sort of been shuffled on what the purpose of the gathered church is, how important is that, why show up to church, do you have to? (laughs) Like all these different things that we've been having to think about. And so we thought uh, it might be good to look at scripture and look at the beginning of the church and mine out some of the whys and hows of how that started to glean what it really is. And so we're not making it up in kind of what feels a bit like a blank slate. It's not entirely blank, obviously, but many of you, if you're like me, have been kind of staring at this Gathering and, and like looking at it with a bit of a different lens. And when you you kind of have this day in, day out of church, many of you, if you grew up a Christian like me or you've been around this thing for a while, you just do the church thing and everyone kind of knows that's what you do. And recently, there's been some questions about its function and its role. And especially when like safety concerns get thrown in the mix and you start having to prioritize things in weird ways that you didn't really have to before, it causes some, I think, worthwhile questions. So they're worth answering. And uh I think at the, at the heart of it, there's one main question that we want to try and answer uh, in this whole series. And we're going to spend some time in it. We're going to spend the spring in it, really going through Acts sort of more like, not, not verse by verse, but, but definitely little chunk by little chunk, like story for story to see what's going on here. But today, we're just going to do an overview, and I hope to give you just some general observations of those 1 to 11 chapters, and we're going to kind of set the stage for the series. So here's the question. What is the purpose of the gathered church? What unites us? What actually glues us all together here? And you'll have probably lots of different answers. I know I have lots of answers, and they're all largely correct. Some of them would be, uh, some of the common ones would be community. You know, we're here because we're we're family a lot. Love that word. It's certainly a family. We're here because we're family. And, you know, if I put on my, like, cynical hat a little bit, and I go, yeah, but, I mean, dinners are better than church for that, aren't they? Like foods, but there's no food here. But food is a biblical thing. Like food builds community like nothing else. We should have food here. Maybe we should have feast beforehand. Well, okay, so the question is, is then is what this is for really about community primarily, or should we just have community dinners? Maybe those are better at that. It's a question I've been asking myself. What about discipleship? Well, I mean, kind of. We kind of grow in our discipleship here, but if you really see discipleship as that life-on-life, life, someone's asking you the hard question. Like how is your relationship with God doing? How how is that? How are you loving other people? When's the last time you, I <laughs> did a faith-filled thing? Like that's really where discipleship is most effective. And so, is this about discipleship? In part maybe, but I think D groups are kind of better for that. At least they are for me, in that strict definition of discipleship anyway. Even worship. Uh, Man, we had some fun trying to figure out how to stream worship, didn't we, Tim? Like just trying to figure out how to get something that sounded OK to <laughs> your TVs was quite a chore. That's all Pastor Tim he did a great job. And we, we managed, you know? And you know, you think, that was, that was OK. We all weren't singing together, and you know, Spotify's got some pretty decent music. And... But there is something about being here with you that's, that's different. And so, is it is it just about is it just about worship? Well, I don't know. I can, can I connect with God on my own, actually, pretty decently. I have a piano in my living room now. If I want to worship, I just go sit at that thing. But of course, we know that there's something different about here, and it's not the best community in the strict definition. But it, there's something about it that's so essential. It's not exactly discipleship, but I, but I couldn't imagine it happening without this. It, I don't know if you you're wrestling like me. So what is it? You know, it's a. Uh, Matt and Soph said it's not a gathering, it's not a church building, it's it's a people. And that's 100% true. But it, but a people who don't gather aren't really a people either. So we should probably gather at some point. Maybe just smaller gatherings. So we're going to look at Acts to get a grip on what the essential nature is of the church. So here's just a bit of an overview. Um, this series will look at the role of the fancy word is ecclesia. okay, that's the Greek word for church. It's going to look at the role of the ecclesia in shaping the hearts and lives of uh, of how we as believers function. That's what it's going to try to do. How did the church grow? Uh, what role did it have in society? What role did it have in the lives of believers? And if we're going to sum it all up, you'll put it on the screen. I used a really fancy word up there. What does a healthy ecclesiology look like today? And that's just a fancy word for what the church really is. What does a healthy view of what the church really is look like today? And next slide, we're going to try to place one's personal spiritual faith in the context of the ecclesia that we see in Scripture. Why did the church happen? Why was that the natural byproduct of Jesus coming and then leaving his Holy Spirit and giving us this charge of going and making this? Why did the church happen, and why does it look like the way it looks like? Why was that the natural? So, of course, it's not going to look exactly like Acts anymore, a little bit of a different time, a little bit different place. Some technology might change that up. I mean, who knows? So we're not, we're not looking at Acts to go, let's go right back to the exact letter of how they did it, and let's sell all our possessions. We're like, we're some sometimes that happens in Acts where you read it and go, well, let's just do exactly that. That's not going to be the point in this series so much, as I think we're going to learn the how and the why of well, how the church became what it was. And Acts, uh, chapter one to eleven, detail the birth of the church in Jerusalem. Acts is a, a neat book because it's kind of structured geographically. It's Jesus, Jesus, uh, you know, sends to heaven at the end of Luke, and then Luke's keep, Luke keeps writing in Acts, and it has this geographic orientation from Judea, from the message going from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That it has this geographic orientation. And the first 11 chapters are about the birth of the church in Jerusalem. And then it moves on and on and on and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we have Paul going to Rome, you know, and it's, it's the apostles going further and further away. So it has this geographic orientation. But we're going to kind of focus on the Jerusalem portion to look at how it was birthed. So let's jump into an overview of the book, and then we'll try to set the stage for the series together. As we think about church and what it is, the ecclesia. So have you ever stopped to think about the difference between how the church grew originally and how it grows now. You ever stop to think about that? You ever stop to think to go, okay, when I read scripture, the church grew in this way, but like, do we see it growing in the same way now? And and it depends on how cynical you're feeling today, but some people would say the church isn't growing. People are just kind of moving from one church to another. and uh, and, and, and largely, the church is in decline, and so it's it's, if, you're, if you're feeling, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed today, you would go, nah, the church isn't really growing very much. We're kind of just trying to survive this experience called church. But I tend to take a more gracious approach and go, there are so many people still being grafted in to this amazing family movement. And it's growing because people are still tasting of something. People are still joining something. And is it a gathering? Or is it something deeper? So maybe you can pause for a second and go, why did you come today? <laughs> why did you come? It's just a helpful thought. I mean, I don't know, maybe not to be too existential, but you came for a reason today. And maybe it was one of the ones I listed earlier, like community or discipleship or worship. These are all great things, of course. But at its core, the aim of this series, and hopefully today's sermon is to try to set a stage for what I think Acts really does teach about the primary reason why we gather. And that's what we're going to do. So, if you don't mind, I'm gonna. I want to do. I just want to go through an overview of the book, and we're gonna mine out uh, what. Uh People who study scripture call a structural relationship, and it's how the book is orchestrated and set up. And uh, just the 1st 11 chapters, anyway. And what happens in the first eleven chapters, over and over and over again, and how the church grow uh, grew is it's this. You can put the, the slide up. It's kind of like a four-stage thing that she, yeah. I skipped that. Uh, four-stage thing that keeps happening over and over again. There's a bunch of signs and wonders. The Holy Spirit does something super cool through one of the apostles. Then they get persecuted in some form, usually because of what just happened, and everyone's confused and doesn't know why. Uh, Jesus is then preached as the reason and authority behind that thing that just happened, and then the church grows. And that happens like four or five times in the first 11 chapters of Acts, over and over and over again, just in different ways, in different stories. So I'll give you a few of them. Um, uh, the spear comes at Pentecost, the crowd all mocks them, thinks they're all drunk. Peter stands up and says, "No, this is actually the Holy Spirit," and preaches an amazing sermon about Jesus. And three thousand were added to their number. Okay, that's a good example of it. Another one: Peter heals a lame beggar at the at the at the gate of the temple. Then Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin because you did what now in whose name? Third, Peter and John preach in front of the Sanhedrin about Jesus, and then uh, because of that, the believers are like. They 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 get let go. It's very miraculous. The church grows. They're praying. They're bolstered. The Holy Spirit comes again. Super cool. The church is growing. A uh, couple more apostles heal a bunch of people. Then they get arrested. The apostles get set free from prison by an angel and then go preach at the temple gate about how they were set free. <laughs> and then, uh, they, and then they get flogged and are rejoiced. They rejoice because of their suffering and the church is really encouraged. Last one at least in the chunk of Acts that we'll be looking at. Stephen performs a bunch of signs and wonders. Then opposition arises and people start to spread rumors about why he's doing that. Stephen then preaches to them, one of the best sermons of all time in chapter seven. They stone him and uh, because of what he said. And the church is actually scattered in this case, but then it grows because they scattered. <laughs> and so it just keeps happening, this, this repetition. So as you look at this, repetition. is like, is this the way the church grows today? <laughs> is this how it happens? I don't know. That sounds pretty volatile to me, doesn't it? Like signs and wonders that aren't explainable. Somebody's got to stand up and say why this is happening. Usually some people are really upset about that. And then the church is dramatically strengthened because the gospel was articulated as an explanation of something unexplainable happening in everybody's life. That's pretty cool. That is, uh, I mean, it makes sense why the church exploded. So here's what I want to do. I just want to make a couple observations. We're going to walk through each of those little steps. I just want to talk about them each because I think they're important to, to, to understand. So the first one, the signs and wonders. Uh, this is the first point. Signs and wonders are demonstrating Christ's authority, basically. their their actions done under authority. They're demonstrating who's actually in charge now. So... Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and you're going to do greater things than me, and you're going, to, you're going to now continue on my ministry. And what people are doing is they're performing miracles in Jesus' name. It's an essential part of all those examples I gave you of when the signs and wonders are performed. They're always performed in Jesus' name. And it's like, it's as though the apostles are exercising the dominion that Jesus has over the world through these signs and wonders, They're they're ambassadors for Christ. This is the term we use. And the Holy Spirit's moving through them and they are, yeah, they're exercising Christ's dominion over sickness and over death and over disease. And they're just ambassadors of this new kingdom, so it seems. Uh, In in Acts 3.16, here's an example of this. This is when uh, um, Peter's explaining what happened after they healed the 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 lame beggar. I'll use the lame beggar example just for today because it's one of the four I mentioned and it's a good one to use. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Isn't it just super clear what's going on? He's not like, yeah, we hung out with Jesus for a super long time and he taught us how to do all these cool tricks, I think like that's not what he says. I mean, they learned lots. They practiced lots while he was still around. But his full-on explanation is like, "We just, we're just speaking in Jesus' name." Cool things seem to keep happening. <laughs> I think he's actually in charge. You know, that's I'd, I'd probably explain it if I was. It's like I don't know. We just keep, we just keep giving him credit for stuff, and he keeps doing cool stuff. <laughs> that's kind of what's happening. So this Holy Spirit is enabling the believers to exercise His dominion over the whole world so fun. So then what's persecution? Point 2, which seems to happen right away every time. It's opposition to that authority. People don't necessarily want Jesus to be in charge of the whole world for all kinds of reasons. But in the, you know in early acts it's the it's the Jewish officials who are very threatened by the idea that that was the Messiah who they killed. So not great news. They don't love the idea of people going around and exercising Jesus dominion by healing people in really public places because they killed that guy and they made sure he was crucified. So they're in direct opposition to that name having authority. No, 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 no. We, that, that guy can't actually have authority. That's a big problem for us. In four 4.7, they said, uh, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or name do you do this? That's their big question. It's like, okay, cool, way to heal the lame beggar. That's really nice of you. But you see what they're upset about? They're not really upset that the lame beggar was healed. They're, by whose name are you doing this? It's an authority problem in a big way. Whose name, they're asking. Uh, So these days, um, I I think that these days, the critique would be, uh, you know, uh, fast forward. I don't think uh, opposition to our authority would be like whose name are you doing this in? It would be more like you have a name with which you're executing your life. Like you're giving credit. This is like us today now. You're giving credit for the the things that you do and the and the miracles in your life and the goodness you experience and the and the miracles you get to. Produce. You're attributing that to someone else. That's threatening. To, to our culture. We're supposed to be self-starters and have it all together and we're the name on who we call and we did well and we read the right book and we ascended to greatness. The idea that we would be going, look, we're just we're just having faith in this guy Jesus who really seems to be in charge would be uh, worth persecuting us over because it's an affront to who's actually supposed to be in charge. And you know, in this story, it's the Pharisees and Sadducees and all those people who are feeling real threatened by this. But in today's culture, it would just be the good old-fashioned God of our culture called self. And the idea that we would attribute our good anything good we have in this life, even our sufferings, of going, it's for the name, it's for the name, it's for another name, it's for who's really in charge. That's maybe you've experienced persecution for giving credit to someone else other than your own self-drive. So, number three, Jesus is preached as the one who has the dominion. This is the third step. Jesus has then preached in the face of all this persecution. He's preached as the one who does. Here's a good example in uh, chapter 4, verses 10 and 12. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. This is another example of Peter standing up and saying something awesome in the face of this. Then, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, under heaven given to mankind by which we much must be saved. I didn't put this next verse up here, but there's another example where Peter stands up and says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Prince, savior, no other name. Like, what's being preached is that guy is the king of the universe, that guy that you killed, that then God raised from the dead, is fully in charge and has all the keys, and we're just going to do whatever he says. There's a bunch of examples. and we'll go through this as we go through 11 chapters, but the Pharisees are like, just stop saying it's him. You know, just please stop using his name, please. And they're like, one of my favorite responses in one of the stories is them going, would you like us to obey you or God? Like, you decide. You're supposed to be the experts on this. You want us to obey you? We're going to obey God. We're going to obey the guy who's in charge of the whole world now. You know, and they're just so handcuffed. I feel so bad for the Pharisees sometimes in these stories. So here's what's happening, is what this people group is hearing when Peter gets up and says, it's in Jesus' name that all this happened, what people are hearing is Jesus is Caesar. That's what it's it's sounding like to them. That's, that's how they're interpreting this. Okay, I mean, there's, there's obviously a difference, but that's the way that Caesar, they're being told to hail Caesar as, which has always been awkward for the Jews in particular. They don't really love the idea that Caesar says he's God. But what the people of the day are thinking is, oh my goodness, Jesus is Caesar. This is the message. He's in charge. He's the savior. He's the one we worship. He's the one who we have ultimate allegiance to. That's what it's being translated as. So, again, we don't think so much about Caesar these days. But the modern day, modern day translation into like a Western democratic culture would be, Jesus is leading my life. Jesus is supposed to lead my life, not me. Oh, Jesus is Caesar. Oh, Jesus is the leader of my life, not me. That's, that's, the, that's what's being preached in this, to this culture. is a a new leader who your ultimate allegiance is to. So this is the kind of preaching that would, you'd think it'd start to give birth to a new sect of people, hey? It's a bunch of people who are going, we're gonna acknowledge the supreme authority of the whole world, whatever that means now. It's actually very logical. And if you were around and you 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 saw Jesus raised from the dead and you were with him and you saw all his miracles and you saw all these signs and wonders, you'd start to think, I think I might sign up for this guy's plan. And that's what these people started to do. And they also started to gather and be together. And we'll talk about that in a second. So the fourth point, the church is then strengthened, right? It's the last thing that happens. The church is strengthened by praying for Christ's increased dominion. That's kind of one of their main activities actually here in in, in the book of Acts. And there's a great prayer that the early church prays right after Peter and, and John get released from, you know, they didn't end up getting killed for healing a beggar the church really goes into like a prayer, prayer meeting mode. And there's an amazing prayer that like gets prayed. I'm going to read it out. This is, the, this is the early Christians praying to God. So it's, it's addressed to God. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the whole place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now look at what happens immediately. This is the next verse. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had. Interesting, that's the next thing that happens. They're praying for Christ's dominion, that he would continue to be in charge and stretch out his hand and work through them. And then this is kind of like, the next thing is like, oh, by the way, they were all of one heart and mind and shared everything. and You know, they were the church, the ecclesia. So this makes sense to me, that if you were praying for Christ's dominion at an increased level, and you were praying that he would continue to be king and in charge and exercising that authority more and more and more, and that was the cry of your heart, and then there was a bunch of other people who that was the deepest cry of their hearts, that he would continue to have dominion, that'd be a fun group of people to be a part of and have a prayer meeting with. That would unite you in one heart and mind, I think. And you you think about the fragmentation that can even happen inside of the church and I think it's usually some derivative of us not of us not prioritizing and praying and having what we really rally around be Christ's dominion. And we can start to rally around lots of other little worthwhile things. But if what unites us first is not that, fractions will for sure happen cuz the church was designed to only be able to be unified By Christ's kingship. It's actually the only thing that could ever keep us together, is that deeply essential fact. And the church, anytime it's unified, it's completely miraculous because it's a group of people who's managed to put that as the first foremost thing. It makes sense to have it as the first foremost thing. I'm glad he's designed a system that requires his ultimate authority and kingship to be the only thing that actually manages to keep us together. But that being said, it can still be tough sometimes. So it's fun, hey? Praying for Christ's dominion. And it leads to this radical hospitality and community and sharing and the kind of community that I think any of us would want to be a part of. Maybe not the sell everything thing. I don't know. I've yet to be sold on that one. But uh, it certainly sounds like a tight knit group of people. So here's the point of all that uh, early church growth was actually extremely political. And I use that small p, political. It was about a new king, mostly. Mostly the message was there's a new guy in charge. And that's what is that's what first united people. It wasn't let's create a great community that tries to exemplify Jesus' teaching really well, although that happened. And it wasn't, you know, let's try to do, you know, good things in, in Jesus' name, although that happened. The essential idea and what brought them all together was actually. Jesus is Caesar now, and we're going to start a new nation, kingdom. There's a new kingdom now. I think that's so fascinating. That's what, that's what we're doing here today, actually. Like, there's a new kingdom now, and we're still gathering essentially, actually, because of that fact. Jesus is Caesar. Uh, if you can nerd out with me for one second, the term ecclesia, why did they pick that? instead of the word synagogue, to call church. would have been much more likely just to stick with the name synagogue. It means a community of people gathering around, you know, to meet God and be together and be community. It's a good, good name. We could, we could still very easily could have just had, this would just be called a synagogue. After a long time of history, synagogue became a very Jewish name and then church became the Christian name or whatever. But there's, it's worth pausing and stopping and going, well, why didn't we just adopt the word synagogue for what we're up to? as Christians. And there's basically one reason, there's basically (laughs) the term ecclesia was a secular term that the church largely adopted, and what it means is a called-out gathering that was reserved for political and military purposes, (laughs) So Matthew is the one who actually started using it. He started using Ecclesia when he was recounting what Jesus was talking about. When Matthew, in the book of Matthew, says church, it's Ecclesia, and Paul uses Ecclesia almost exclusively, and several other apostles do. And some of them use synagogue sometimes too, or at least all these different Greek and Hebrew translations. We don't have to get into it. But slowly but surely, the term Ecclesia would have won out. And it's because the core message of why the church kept gathering was actually not just about community and not just about encountering God, which is a weird thing to think church isn't primarily. Did you know that? It's actually not primarily about encountering God. The veil's been torn, hey? Like, you you and I can all be with God all day, all the time, (laughs) every morning, noon, and night. You and I are not separated from God. We don't have to go to a special place to do that, which is great. Um, because more and more, it wasn't about that. It was like, oh, there's like a mission in a kingdom that has a purpose that has to be advanced. And this is actually kind of political and military, actually, in a way. Of course, it's not with force and it's not through earthly political or militaristic means. But the term ecclesia was way better than synagogue for the church. Uh, good translations of, of ecclesia for today are like task force. It's like weird. But we would never use that today. We're like, oh, did you go to task force today? But that's a better term for Ecclesia. The church doesn't mean much anymore to us. You know, these words kind of lose all their meaning. Church, church, church. What is that? Is it building? People? We all get confused. Uh, task force. It's hard to it's hard to get around task force. Uh, actually, a really good translation, according to this professor at Regent, he says Salvation Army is really good. That's a really good translation of Ecclesia. <laughs> So the Salvation Army, you guys have it right. Good name, good name for your denomination. So I ask you again, why did you come to church today? Why did you come? It's an important question to ask. I'll tell you. Uh, I'll tell you what's on usually on my mind when I come to church. A couple of things. I really hope I meet God today. Right, that's on my mind as I'm on my way over here. I really hope I meet God today. It's a good thing. None of these things are bad, by the way. I'll just, I'm just telling you what I usually think about. Long before the political thing. Uh, I hope I meet God today. I hope I make a friend. I hope I meet somebody new. I hope community is built. That's nice. I hope, I, I hope the experience is worth my time. i be honest with you. There's a lot of things competing for my time. I mean, I work here, so I guess I have to be here. But I, I hope the experience is worth my I really think that. I hope it's worth it. Uh, another one, people will notice if I'm not there so I don't want to feel bad about myself It's another one that sometimes creeps in. It's like we all have like a group gym membership and then when that person doesn't come, it's like, oh, so-and-so didn't show up to the gym today. That's, these are things that can kind of creep in. I don't know, to the reason why we get in the car. With all those things are worthwhile and I, and I hope they happen, um, we see in Acts a superseding reason that's going to frame our series. The king has called an assembly. And we're actually here to show allegiance to that kingdom. We're here to show allegiance to him who's in charge. It's like really profound. You know what's so neat about that is like the nature of his kingdom is so beautiful and warm, you know, and kind and inclusive that you kind of forget about, I do, I forget about that. Forget about what's the like the biggest thing going on. And I like to focus on the smaller things because they're all so lovely. Turns out when Jesus is in charge, things get really good. (laughs) Things get really good. when When a bunch of people are going, whatever that guy says, whatever it costs me, and they take scripture and they go, what did he do? Who is he? How can I be like him? And you put all those people in the same room, it becomes a really wonderful place. And I see how the church can so often get lost in the fruits of Jesus's kingship, as opposed to him being king. I get that. There's a lot of fruits. And then I start to not like it when the fruits aren't as good some days, and, and I lose sight of what's the deepest thing going on. So, kind of in summation, the church is a kingdom people who are declaring and demonstrating their allegiance to the king. We're declaring it, and we're demonstrating it. That's what we're doing here today, our allegiance to our king. And The kingdom really is a wonderful place to be. He demonstrates his power here. He leads, he leads us into right relationship with each other. It's beautiful. But uh, I'll end with this. This is what uh, Mark Sayers, great great thinker in the church today, uh, says heard in a podcast, And he says, "Our generation really wants the kingdom, but they don't want the king." That's, yeah, I know, mic drop. Um, well-timed. Uh, but I think that's a really profound statement, hey. We want the kingdom and all the benefits of it, but we don't want the king. And we have to be really careful as we approach this idea of church, going, I want all the goodies of the kingdom, but Jesus' kingship kind of takes a bit of a back seat. And I love, again, I've said this already, but I love the idea that he's designed something that only functions with him as the supreme person in charge. And so maybe you're struggling with the idea of what your role is in the ecclesia and what... How what an ecclesia is has anything to do with your life and your walk and your discipleship and your mission. And I would say it has everything to do with it, because uh, where our allegiance is is where all the fruits actually come from. And first and foremost, we put him in charge, and then we and we start there. We start with you're in charge, and you've told us to do some stuff, and then and then let's let, let's see what happens. But I think that's essentially what the church is. So let's be careful not to skip Jesus' lordship and our understanding of church and the kingdom of heaven that it was called to display to the world. One last fun thing. This is what I'm hoping for, is as we, I'm hoping for kind of two things in this series. One is as we grab hold of the deeply profound, dare I say political kingdom nature of what we're doing here, that it will place a deep sense of reverence and importance on your heart of what the gathered church is supposed to be and what it's actually saying when we get together. And that 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 importance rests heavily and like, oh, this is why I'm here. And this is why, uh, like I'm called to be a part of something so much bigger than myself. And for me, that frames my faith in a really helpful way because I can make it about just me so fast. And the me and Jesus thing happens so quickly and it's beautiful and it's amazing. And it's not going anywhere, but I sometimes get lost and I wonder what the point of all of you is. And all of a sudden I start to, uh deviate and and it gets confusing and I get lost in myself and then I come back here and I go lord who are you and what are you really doing and all of a sudden I'm reminded of the fact that he's taking over the world with love again <laughs> like oh yeah oh yeah you're going to you're going to come back and rule perfectly in love i'm going to go to church like it's it starts to make sense again in my own heart and then the second thing i'm hoping for is that as you and I have him be king in our lives, and we do that and we prioritize that, even when it's uncomfortable and doesn't make a ton of sense and you're just doing it because hes that's true, that, that we'll begin to see the fruit more and more. And the church, it's a window into the kingdom of heaven. Like it's a window into what's ultimately coming where Jesus really is in charge. And he really does have all of our heart's allegiance not just like a salute allegiance, like our heart's allegiance. That's a big ask of us. That's what he wants, our heart's allegiance. And when we're a people that gather, like you guys are, your hearts are allied to a person and you really listen to what he says and you really love him. And I see how his supremacy in all of your lives shapes your community and it shapes the decisions that you make and it affects real stuff and miracles happen with one another. And it's like, I want a part of that. And when then the, what they'll say yes to is not a nice experience. They'll say yes to a good life leader. And that's what we'll have been preaching the whole time. And that's a community worth joining. Father, thank you for your, 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 your supremacy and your kingship and your dominion. Uh, and I pray that as we unpack the birth of your church, of your people, of this kingdom people, that you would give us a a profound sense and importance of our calling as those who declare your allegiance. And that as we do, that you would regain supremacy in our lives in the most minute details to the biggest things. Because God, you're such a good king and a good leader. And when you're in charge, you really do a great job. And so I pray that our church would be a reflection of your kingship and your dominion. And then as we do, Lord, I pray that the fruits of your authority would just run rampant at this community. Pray for signs and wonders and miracles and restored relationships and wholeness and unity amongst diversity and, and multi, all the multis, generational, multi-ethnic, all the all the things that require miracles. And the signs and wonders of that, as that they're displayed to the world. Lord, we know there'll be persecution, but we pray that we'd preach your name in the face of it and go, This is why. And this is why he's better. This is why he's a better leader in my life. And this is why he could be a better leader in your life. Because God, you are, you are a great one. You're so trustworthy and so good. And you've proven that time and time again. And so we elevate you again to your rightful place as King of our hearts, Lord of this church, and of this community, we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship.